Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Psalm 42. We, as we've mentioned the last couple of weeks, we're taking a break in Romans that we've been working through since the beginning of last year, actually. We started Romans in, in January of 2017, and we just finished Romans 10 a couple of weeks ago. We'll pick back up in the beginning of January in Romans 11, and as you've heard the last couple of weeks, first with Doug Duncan, one of our elders, two weeks ago, and then... Reuben Moyana, another one of our elders, mentioning last week as he preached that um, I will be taking a two-month sabbatical. I'm preaching today, if you haven't figured that out. And, um, and then next week, and then, uh, then I will be on sabbatical through the end of the year, and uh, we'll be back at the beginning of January. Um, I, I want to just mention a few brief things about that, and then next week I'm going to I'm going to share with you a little bit more um, poignantly and specifically about my sabbatical and um, things that I'm hoping that the Lord will do in me and in us as a church, and really just kind of being honest with you about kind of where I am internally and where my heart is and how um, for the past 13 years of ministry, which has been a great joy planting this church and serving this church, it has taken a bit of a toll on me, and um, I, I admit that I am a bit tired and, and I need a rest. And so the elders have been very gracious to me to encourage me to do that and to unplug. And we'll be speaking more specifically about that next Sunday. And then in the member meeting that we have on Sunday evening, next Sunday night, um, we're going we're gonna to talk even more specifically about it. So I'd love for you to, to, to come next week and hear more specifically about that. This morning, I want to speak from and preach from Psalm 42, which may be a familiar psalm to, to many of you. It's this beautiful cry to God where the psalmist is, is really preaching to himself in the middle of, of a time of great discouragement and, and feeling of separation from God. So why Psalm 42 right now today, especially on the heels of where we've been in Romans. I always have this burden for us as a church that we, I love that we are a church that desires to embrace big God, deep water theology. That's one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible primarily, because we don't want to skip over difficult portions of the Bible. We think all of the Bible is inspired by God and given to us for our good. And even the difficult parts of the Bible, as we've been walking through, particularly in Romans 8 and 9, are for our good. And so we, we want to rejoice in the theology of the Bible and the bigness of the God of the Bible. But my concern all along, for my own soul and for us as a church and for people like us, is that there can often be in the Christian life, especially, I think, churches and people that, are, that lean towards having a high view of God and a big view of theology, there can be unwittingly a kind of gap that develops between what you confess theologically and what you actually experience in your life. And, and when you're in a, a church culture, 
there can be a lot of pressure on you to believe the right things and for your life to, to kind of match what you believe as if your life is always going to be in line perfectly and your experience of God is always going to be in line perfectly with what you confess about God. And friends, I'm just here to tell you that is not the case. It, two or three of us, at least I think, agree. And what that can produce in us is, 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 a, is a lonely place. It can produce in us a kind of, even a, a sort of spiritual shame where we feel like we have to hide because, because we aren't necessarily feeling uh, subjectively in line with what we objectively believe to be true. I'm not saying in any way that our, that our feelings are more powerful than the truth of God's word. I'm saying that's where many people are. So who do I have in mind as we think about, in just a moment, read Psalm 42 and consider some truths for it? I have in mind there's people in this church. I have in mind a young person who feels, for a variety of reasons, for a whole host of streams that are feeding into the, to the lake that is their life, they feel very far from God. They, they feel like God is not really on their side and that God is not a good father. They believe in the sovereignty and the power and the authority of God, but, but there's still a, a voice in their heart that whispers to them that God is not a good father and is not really on their side. I, I have in mind the person struggling with persistent, besetting habits of sin that they cannot seem to break. And week after week and month after month and year after year, they learn more about God, but it doesn't seem to actually translate into more holiness. And so they, there's this ever-increasing gap between what they know and what they're living, and they know that if they were really honest about that, they fear that there might be some sort of backlash or shock or dismay with their circle of friends, and so they continue to submerge their struggle. I have in mind the person whose life has been turned upside down because of the decisions of some person that they're very close to or that they love who's walking away from them or from the Lord and it is causing their life to be turned upside down. I have in mind tired middle-aged pastors who need to be reminded to hope in God. The setting of Psalm 42 is one that all of us can identify with. It is either written by King David or the sons of Korah. These sons of Korah were temple musicians in the life of Israel. And either it is referring to a time when Israel is is separated from God in captivity, and these temple worshipers, these, in a sense, musicians, worship leaders for the corporate worship of Israel, are longing for the day when they can be back in Jerusalem, back in the temple, leading God's people in worship, 
Or maybe it's David, we're not sure. Maybe it's David separated from Jerusalem because he's fleeing from his enemies, maybe Saul or maybe Absalom. Regardless of whether it's one or the other, I think all of us can identify that the point here is that it is God's people who aren't where they want to be with God. And this is the cry of the psalmist who preaches the gospel to himself even in the midst of despair. Let me read Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand. Lord, thank you for this passage, for this song. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the rawness of this passage, this portion of your word. Lord, help us. Help us to think deeply about how your truths actually apply in our lives. I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room would be encouraged and exhorted and and helped by our time in your word. I pray for my friends that don't yet know Jesus, that you, by your sovereign grace, would make them alive, that you'd give them a new heart so that they can believe, that you'd give them the gift of faith so they can turn from sin and trust in you and be made one of your people. Make us more like Jesus as a result of our time together. And then as we, at the end of this message, as we see three brothers and a sister from our body be baptized, I pray that we would celebrate the goodness of the glory of the gospel together. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that Psalm 42 gives us counsel for our souls when they are discouraged. 
And the, I want you to see the structure of Psalm 42 before we dive into it and look at four truths, four, four things to counsel our soul from in this passage. The first, it, it's kind of broken down into two parts. The first five verses, really the first four verses, is the psalmist really assessing his situation. He is separated from God and he's, he's in a dry place. That's why he, he, he's like a deer panting for flowing streams, panting for God, thirsting for God, but not able to, to drink at God's river. And he's, he's longing for this time when he will be back. In the context of verse 2 there where it says, when shall I come before God and appear before God? The context of that is when shall I be back in good fellowship with God and his people? Because in verse 4, he remembers a time when he was leading them in worship. And so the context is him not just longing for a personal experience with God, but to be back connected in community with God's people worshiping God. And so the first four verses are a kind of confession and assessment of his, of his situation. And then verse five, he, he turns from talking about things to talking to himself. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then he continues on in verse six, through 10 to again sort of assess his situation and talk about where he is. And then in verse 11, he again turns the, 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 the arrow on himself and, and again preaches the gospel. In fact, verses 5 and 11 are virtually identical. He again speaks to himself and says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So you see these it's kind of two sections. 1 through 5 and 6 through 11, assessment, confession, this is where I am. And instead of staying there, he turns the, the arrow on himself and he, he preaches the gospel to himself. And he does that again in verses 6 through, through 11. So let's think about four truths to counsel our souls from Psalm 42. And the first is this, and these are simple. This is not rocket science. The first is this, that it's okay to be honest with God. It's okay to be honest with God. I mentioned earlier about this gap that sometimes forms between what we know we should be experiencing and what we are actually experiencing. Sometimes people like us that take theology very seriously have a hard time applying it. And there can be this, this chasm that develops between what's going on on the inside of us and what's happening on the outside of us. And what that does is it tends to produce in us a shame that can compel us to put on a religious face. And there's, there's no place that that pressure is actually more acute. Strangely enough, there's no place that that pressure is more acute than actually in the local church. It, does anybody else feel that pressure? And let me just give you a little pastoral insight. Uh, you, you may have walked into this room, maybe you're new here, maybe you're visiting, and you're sitting by somebody that looks like they really have it together. Um, let me tell you, as their pastor for the past 13 years, they don't. 
And then <laughs> you may be listening to somebody and you think, oh, that guy, he seems like he knows what he's talking about, whatever. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I think I kind of know a little bit about the Bible, I sort of, but I mean, come on, friends. We're, you know what I'm talking about? We're all, we're all just kind of, I, I watched um, this movie recently. My, my parents came into town, and me and my dad like to go to movies, and, and we went to go see this first man. It's about Neil Armstrong going to the moon. And I was, I mean, I was, I, I know what happens. I mean, I've, I've, I remember the history. I wasn't alive in 1969 or whenever it was, but I was gripping these spacecrafts that they were actually flying into outer space look like high school science. I mean, they look like tin cans taped together with duct tape. And they're shooting these things into space. And they made it. And they made it back. I mean, some of them didn't. But, but the point is, is that's, that's kind of how most of us feel. The pressure of the atmosphere is making the tin can of our spacecraft rattle, right? That, that's, 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 that's much of the Christian life. And it's, it's being held together by duct tape and parachute cord. And, and let's just admit that's the way it is for a lot of life. Regardless of how cute you look right now, and regardless of what filter you use on Instagram, life ain't that shiny. It ain't that shiny. But here's the thing about, about honesty with God, is God can handle our honesty. In fact, he encourages it. He's writing into his Bible human experience that is giving voice to doubts about whether or not God is for us. Take that in. Take that in. He's writing into the account that his, his inspired word questions interrogations about his character. You're in Psalm 42. Just, just flip to the left to Psalm 13. I mean, listen to this psalm. This is David. He says, this is in the Bible. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I, may, must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O oh Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now he gets to the right conclusion, but the first four verses are pretty raw, are they not? And this, friends, take this in. Just, take the, just compare Israel gathered worship culture with the majority of American church culture we don't sing songs like that. That was a song. That was a song where God's people would gather together, 
How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? <laughs> we, we don't sing songs like that very often in the American church, and I think it's because we are addicted to a kind of exterior happiness that really doesn't get you anywhere. And so, just another little word here. I know I sound like the grumpy middle-aged guy that's watering his lawn and just wants the kids to get off his grass. But if you don't stick at Crosspoint, and I, man, I can understand that. If you don't stick at Crosspoint and you go to some other church, um, don't go to some church that tries to act like you should be happy all the time. Because that's just, that's not true. And it ain't real. And if, and if they're just singing prom, prom songs to Jesus and everybody's always just kind of falsely happy, I, I don't know, man. I, I, think, I think they're well-intended, but I just think they haven't really plumbed the depths of the Christian life. And I think, I think, I think your soul needs more than that. God can handle our honesty. In fact, he encourages it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28 through 30. Come to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden that he is talking about are the type of people who are writing Psalm 42 and writing Psalm 13. It's a type of frustration with God that he can handle. So it's okay to be honest with God. The second thing I want us to see is that, is that we need one another. We, we need one another. The psalmist longs for the day when he can return to be with the people of God in worship. The Christian life is not an individual sport. It's not. There's, there's actually something way more significant going on right here, right now with us than just a kind of individual experience where you're singing some songs that maybe you prefer or don't prefer and you're hearing a word preached to you or scriptures that are going to hit you. There is a, a communal aspect to the Christian life. There's a, there's a body aspect to the Christian life that is, that is absolutely essential to the Christian life. And the context of the longing of the psalmist in Psalm 42 for God is not for a time when he would return to mere personal communion with God, but he's longing about in verse 4 this time when he would be back with the throng in the house of God. We need one another. We need one another. And here's something I've noticed about myself and I've noticed about hurting Christians or discouraged Christians is that hurting people, discouraged people, often use the failures of others around them as excuses for their own situation or their own isolation. Let me say that again. Discouraged and hurting people often use the failure of others as excuses to stay in isolation. And friends, that 
is the front line of spiritual warfare in your soul, if that's you. I've told you before that I love, um, I love BBC America's Planet Earth. Oh, man. I could, <laughs> I could watch that all day long, that British David Attenborough, the, the, the commentator guy with the accent. And I love seeing these wildlife shows and these lions that are out in the savanna and in Africa or India or somewhere just hunting down some little poor gazelle that's been separated from the herd. I mean, it's kind of sad to be little, see the little gazelle getting eaten. But you know, the baby lion's got to eat too, right? <laughs> but what do lions do? They separate one from the herd. And that's what the enemy does to us. That's why, that's the, in fact, that's the very analogy that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 5. A few verses later, from after where Reuben preached last week, 1 Peter 5, he says that the, your enemy, our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And when we isolate ourselves, we are playing into the enemy's plan for us. Friends, listen, the church is imperfect and it is full of people who will in some way fail you and disappoint you. But here's what I have learned in life in the local church. That strangely in God's kindness and in his sovereignty and providence, that's actually part of God's plan for our sanctification dealing with one another's imperfections. So we have this kind of glossed view of the Christian life. And we think, if I could just find the perfect church, and if, if, if that place, or if that spouse, or if that friendship, or if that job would give me everything that I need and line up perfectly for me, then I could be the person that I'm called to be. The problem is that spouse, that church, that job, that friend, that opportunity doesn't exist. And so you live in a kind of perpetual disappointment where you are isolating yourself from people and you are using the excuse of the failure of other people to justify it. But let's just say that God could craft and he certainly he can, but let's say if God did craft a scenario in your life where everything and every person that you had to deal with, every institution, every church, every job, every boss, every spouse, every child, every friend gave you exactly what you thought was best for you. Friends, in that situation, then you are the center of the universe and God loves you too much to make you God. And so he puts us in the middle of a broken, jacked up world so that we can show that what it's all about is us not getting everything we want out of it, but longing for and living for something bigger than our comfort there. And so you do life with people that are forgetful. You do life with people that are hard to be around. You do life with people that are a little awkward and socially different. You do life with people who are from different cultures than you. You do life with people who aren't easy for you to be around. You put yourself in those situations. You yoke yourself 
to the inconvenience of life in the local church. And when you do that, God does something beautiful. He begins to lift our eyes from ourself and he makes us useful because he's weaning us from ourself by causing us to be patient with the imperfections of others around us. I, I, I think that's where, I think that's ground zero of the Christian life. I think that was a really good point. <laughs> Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to this. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Man. And not just bearing with like the, the cool Christians. Bearing with people that um, when you bear with them and then when you yoke yourself to them and when you get in relationship with them, they, they don't really offer you any sort of status improvement. Bearing with one another and if anyone, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Friends, verse 16 is not written to a specific class of people in the church. It's written to all Christians. We all have a kind of teaching and admonishing ministry to one another. You do. That's not to say that you're going to publicly teach necessarily, but it means that by the way that you have conversations with one another, we are to teach and admonish one another organically in all of our conversations and all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Oh, that's a beautiful text. So how, how do you go, just real practically before we move on, how do you go about living this out? Um, I, I think that you should, I think, and I'm not going to build out a huge case for this because that would be a standalone sermon in and of itself, but I think you should consider if you're not if you're not connected to a local church via some sort of recognized membership, I think you should consider joining either this local church as a member or some other local church where the Bible is preached. And right now, don't turn, don't, if you're visiting with us, don't turn me off and say, ah, I knew it. Man, it seemed, this guy seemed like he was all right, but now he's talking about church membership. He just wants to pad his numbers. No, first of all, simmer down. All right, simmer down. Second of all, just listen to me. Not for the sake of us feeling good about ourselves as a church or whatever, but I think the Bible actually calls the Christian to a kind of formal commitment to other Christians. And I think the words that we use in English to describe that is a kind of membership in the local church. I'm not saying that if you're not a member of a local church that you're not a Christian, you're not saved by water baptism, which we'll see in just a few minutes. You're not saved by being a member of a church. But I do think the context of the Christian life is that you are to live in a kind of accountable, known way with other Christians where you are in some formal sense submitting your life to them. I think that's implicit in all of the Bible. 
We see the situation in 1 Corinthians 5 where this man is in this egregious sin, and Paul tells the Corinthian church to put this man out of the church. And I don't think he's just talking about physically. He's talking about consider him no longer part of the church because he's living in a way for the sake of his soul in hopes that this whole group of people that he's been in fellowship with and love him will say to him, brother, we, you're living in a way that is, in, that is not in line with the Bible. We, we, we can't validate you as really being part of us anymore. And so we're going to we're going to change our stance towards you from one of fellowship to one of evangelism. So we're actually putting you out of this thing that we call the church. Jesus says in Matthew 18 that if there's this kind of unrepentant sin within us, or there's, that, that we are to put people out. Well, my point that I'm making, if, if, if there's something to be put out of, then there's something to be put into. And so I, I think that the whole New Testament argues for, for the life of the local church where people know who they're committed to, and we have a kind of special obligation to live out the one another's of Scripture towards the people in our local church in a way that we don't have to other Christians in other churches in the city, whom, of course, we love. But there, that, that kind of yokedness, that kind of connection to one another, I think is implicit. And then secondly, if you are part of this church, I, I, think, I think if you're not yet, you should, you should consider really kind of cashing your chips in and being part of it and yoking yourself to people not like you and coming a little early and leaving a little late and being part of a community group or maybe leading a community group. Maybe taking the burden on yourself to care for others in an organic way. Become like the little leader, the mayor of your little section of seats and endeavor to know everybody's name and pray for them. And if you don't see them, don't just say, oh, I wonder if the staff is going to call that person. You call that person because you have a teaching ministry. Verse 16 of Colossians 3 that we just said reads to the whole church. It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So fulfill your ministry, right? It's getting a little quiet, so let's move on to point three. Remember in the night what you've learned in the day. Look, look at verse eight again. Look at verse eight of Psalm 42. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Something I've learned about discouragement is that it's worse at night. You can just kind of keep yourself busy during the day, but when you, and you may even be tired, but when your head hits the pillow and there's nothing but you and your thoughts, it can get tough. The night is hard. And that's what I think the psalmist is picking up here. He's saying, just look at the imagery here of verse 8. By day, the Lord commands. That's a, that's a military term. It's like a colonel commanding a battalion, commanding a, a unit, a military unit to take action. And the Lord's commands, when he sends his commands, they 
in this sense, are always obeyed. The Lord commands his covenantal love. He commands it. In the daytime, he sends it out. And at night, his song is with me. But notice here, this verse 8 is in the middle of verse 7 and 9 in which the psalmist is crying out, feeling far from God. Look at verse 7. He says, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The context there is a kind of judgment of God, a kind of frowning providence that is breaking. The waters are crushing in over the psalmist as he is writing this, but in the middle of this despair where he feels like providence is against him, he then says, verse 8, but yet the Lord commands his steadfast love in the day, and whether I realize it or not, at night his song is with me. I think the point is, is that when things are going well for us, we need to dig the footings deep of the foundation of our soul so that when the dark night of the soul comes, we can remember in the night what we've learned in the day. I think it, 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 the essence here is that that's what's going on in verses 5, five and 11. The, the writer is preaching the gospel to himself. In the middle of his dark night, he's remembering what he's learned in the day, and he's saying, why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And he's speaking to himself here. He's preaching a sermon to himself. He's preaching the gospel to himself. Hope in God. He's not talking to us. He's talking to himself, and he's giving us a model for how to endure these dark nights of the soul. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher in the mid-1900s, said in his book, Spiritual Depression, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Do you get what he's saying there? Turn, turn the table. We just kind of go along with it. And, and, and Lloyd-Jones, in this sermon that became a chapter in this book, is encouraging us to, to do. In fact, he's speaking from this verse, Psalm 42, verse 5 and verse 11. Turn the table. Remember this. Remember this. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go away, that all the clouds are going to immediately part, and there's going to be an angelic hallelujah chorus ushering in the, 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 the sun in the morning. But it means that in that moment, we have this privilege to take God's word against our own despair. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And friends, just I think this is where preaching the gospel to yourself again is in the context of community. We isolate ourselves. And we don't hear the gospel preached. We don't put ourselves next to other believers where we hear it preached. And it feels distant. Friends, fight for that. Let me, let, right now, there, there's somebody, this is where, this, friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. There's somebody in this room, I imagine, that just feels so separated, so distant from God. And you're like, you're theologically agreeing with me, but you're like, yeah, but I don't even have the energy. I don't even have the energy to do this. 
Friends, don't read some goosebump awesome experience into verse 5 and 11. He's in the middle of despair. He doesn't have a soundtrack from Spotify playing in the background and like a perfect environment with a comfortable couch and a coffee mug with the right amount of cream in it and a little Christian verse on the side of it and a little Bible marked up with all these cute colors. He's, he doesn't have an iPhone where he's going to take a picture of the verse that he's reading and share it with everybody, letting them know how awesome they're doing. He's in the middle of despair. There are no goosebumps. God feels a thousand miles away, and life is tough, but he preaches the gospel to himself, and he probably didn't feel great immediately after that. Friends, that may be you. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the gap between our subjective feelings and the objective truth of who God is to us, that's where we realize that the objective truth is stronger than the subjective moment. And preaching the gospel to yourself is not a hocus-pocus, abracadabra spell that makes the clouds instantly vanish. It's a confession. It's a fastening where you're saying there's something truer and stronger than my feelings, and it's God. But all of this is meaningless. All of this is self-help guru, Barnes & Noble book section, self-affirmation gobbledygook, unless the fourth point is true. And it's this, we can hope in God because Jesus lived Psalm 42 for us. Friends, before we read Psalm 42 as something about our lives, we need to read Psalm 42 as something about Jesus' life. Psalm 42 is actually about Jesus and his experience. See, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the world, the eternally coexistent, co-glorious Son of God, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through whom all things were made, no beginning, no end, co-equal, co-glorious with the Father, and He becomes a man. God created a world that fell under His providence. He knew it would happen. Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, all according to God's plan. Everything that's happening to you in your life is somehow according and underneath the sovereign, good, gracious care of your heavenly Father. And in the fullness of time, God the Father sends God the Son to become a man. He's truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man, but he becomes a person like us, and he endures everything that we endure. The Bible says in Hebrews that he's tempted in all ways as we are. He thirsts. He walks through the dark night of the soul for us. He, in fact, on the cross at the end of the gospel, cries out, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences what this psalm is recounting. 
Where are you, God? Jesus, God the Son, cries out to God the Father on the cross. He experiences, not because of his sin, he's perfect, but because of our sin as a substitute in our place, he experiences the separation from God that our sin and this broken world has brought upon us. And he bears the judgment of God that should have been ours to bring us, to reconcile us to him. And because Jesus is perfect, and because he is the Son of God, his prayers always get answered. And so Jesus in John 17 says, God, glorify me before he goes to the cross. He says, God, glorify me. Now, fulfill your work in me. In other words, I'm going to the cross Raise me up again. And Jesus' prayers are answered. And Jesus was forsaken for us. Jesus bore the wrath of God for us. Jesus hoped in God for us. And Jesus was raised for us. So Psalm 42 is a song of Jesus who hopes in God and is satisfied. And whom God answers. And because Jesus has hoped in God, we can hope in God. Do you see that? That, that's what this psalm is about. And that's what the soul that is in the middle of a dark night needs most. We don't need a God who is there merely for our self-affirmation saying, look within yourself. You can do it. We need a God who actually tells us the opposite thing. Look to the cross, to Jesus who has done it. Therefore, you can hope in God, for you shall again praise him, because he is your salvation and your God. And friends, that is going to be a fight. That's going to be a fight. And even that fight, even that process, is part of God's plan. Let me read this one verse, and then we'll be done, and we're going to see some brothers and a sister baptized. All of that, all of that, you, you may be encouraged now, because here's the threat. You may be encouraged now, and you may leave this room and be like, okay, that was, I got that, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to preach the gospel to myself, but then all of a sudden, Tuesday morning's going to come, and you're not going to feel any different. And even that, even this slow process by which we hope in God in the dark nights of our soul is part of of what God is doing in our lives for his sovereign purposes. Listen to, listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says about this affliction that he was experiencing. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, verse 9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So do you see what's going on there? God is actually arranging circumstances in your life to bring you to a place of despair so that you would realize that you have no hope but Him. Now friends, there's a great mystery to that, God's relationship with circumstances in this fallen world and evil, but God is sovereign over it all and is bringing about He's causing us to rely not on ourselves, but on our God. So the slowness of the dark night of your soul is good for you and me. And we can hope in God. Let's pray. Father, 
take these words and encourage weary travelers, I pray. This world is not our home. This night shall pass, and joy will come in the morning. That joy may not be fully tasted. In fact, it certainly will not be fully tasted in this life. But lift our eyes and let us look heavenward and put our hope in you because we shall see your salvation if we are in Christ. As we see the gospel now preached and displayed and read in the testimonies of these two brothers and the sister that we baptized, may we rejoice in the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.